You're checking out Battleline Podcast, where we interview some of the biggest names who are in some way involved in the special operations field, usually, although we occasionally have guests on from other realms. But in this case, we have Brian Andrews and Jeff Wilson, Andrews and Wilson, and they write some of the most kick-ass books involving characters in the special operations field. In this case, the latest book, Dark Intercept, is centered around Navy SEAL Jedediah Johnson. So you guys are going to dig it. We've had them on before. We had them on on episode 59 back in November. So this is the second time they are making an appearance on Battleline Podcast. I think you're all going to dig it, and I think you're all going to dig the new book. I know many of you who check out the show do end up getting books by some of the authors that we have on and we get some great feedback on them and we love introducing you all to uh to those authors and their work before we get into this interview i wanted to let you know that fort scott munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass cnc spun ammunition it's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation this ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC-spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. Here's what you got to do. Go to their website, fortscottmunitions.com. Link is in the description and click on the dealer locator. You're going to find a dealer right by you. For example, for me, the nearest is South Shore Sportsman in Merrick. I'm on Long Island, um, although there are obviously some gun stores here. Not as many as, uh, as a lot of you guys who are in states like Texas and uh, Kansas, of course, but even by me, you're going to find something. So chances are, once you type in your zip code on there, you check out your state, you're going to find something within your area. Uh, now, if you want to check out their merch, get one of their kick-ass shirts like the uh, Tactic Squad shirts or the um, or the trucker hats. They have so much cool stuff. You'll get 15% off any of that when you use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE at checkout on fortscottmunitions.com. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order, only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. Also, of course, we have our newest sponsor in the firearms realm, and uh, and we're actually going to have Phil Otto on from Photonist Defense on very soon. So uh, check those guys out. Photonis Defense is the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high-quality night vision capabilities than anyone. Hunters, shooters, boaters, and outdoor enthusiasts rely on Photonis Defense systems to make their adventures safer and more successful. Military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize Photonis Defense Solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. Photonis Defense is now offering state-of-the-art night vision systems. From the PD-Pro B 16mm binocular, 
and the PD Pro M 16 millimeter monocular to the PD Pro Q panoramic night vision system, customers from all over are excited about these new, smaller, lighter NVGs. You've got to see these things to really experience just how much smaller and lighter they are than anything you have used previously. You guys are really going to dig them. Chris is speaking so highly of them now that he's uh, gotten a chance to use them when uh, when his buddy Phil from Photonist Defense came over. I think we're going to see some uh, videos in the near future of Chris using them. And yeah, if you're a firearms enthusiast, if you're looking for the right night vision system, this is where you got to go. So check out photonistdefense.com. Link is in the description, but that's www.photonisdefense.com, photonistdefense.com for more information or look for Photonist Defense product options from your night vision dealer. Um, before we get into the interview, I have a bunch of stuff I want to get into with you guys. So, uh, yeah, let's hit that music. Let's get started. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. Thank you, Jimmy Allen, for that music, as always. That's uh, created by none other than Jimmy Allen, original guitarist, songwriter from Puddle of Mud. He kicks ass. I think he's going to do a new outro for us. But uh, with that, the switch is on episode 99. And I know a lot of you guys are probably eager to hear Chris give his thoughts on the current Afghanistan situation. Uh, we will definitely get into that later this month. Chris has been really busy with speaking engagements and tactical classes with Battleline Tactical. So uh, he'll be back, of course, for episode 100. But uh, for this episode, it's just myself and the author team of Andrews and Wilson. But if you do want to check out that list of classes and when's the next time Chris will be in your area, or if you want to fly out and check out a Battleline Tactical course, as always, check out the schedule at Tonto's Gear Locker. Dot com, TontosGearLocker.com. I think you should all know this by now, but that's T-A-N-T-O. You know, sometimes people spell T-O. TontosGearLocker.com. Also, guys, this coming Sunday, September 12th, will be the major airing of War Heroes with Chris Peranto, of course, on Newsmax, and that's going to be at 8 p.m. East or 5 p.m. Pacific. Be sure to watch it. 
It's an amazing story. And Cheryl Doltz will be on later this month as well. That's the mother of Ryan Doltz, who is spotlighted on the show. Ryan Doltz was an amazing hero that we lost in combat. Cheryl Doltz, an amazing gold star mother. And I got a chance to speak with her as I was booking this interview. And I'm just very excited to have her on. Uh, and I'll put it this way, if you watched it already, because there was a uh, there was an earlier airing. This is the major airing. Uh, but if you checked it out for the first time on Newsmax, a lot of uh, feedback I got from people saying they felt it was really sad and they almost had trouble watching it. I, of course, understand that because this is a really young man that we lost in combat at the time. But I don't think it focused only on the sad. It gave a very well-rounded view of Ryan and just of one of the men that we lost in combat. And it, it it did do a good job spotlighting the great times as well for him and, and the times of his family and not just the negative. And Chris brought that out, I think, as well. He did a great job. So I really urge you guys to check that out. Um, once again, Sunday, September 12th, this coming Sunday, War Heroes with Chris Peranto on Newsmax, 8 p.m. East, 5 p.m. Pacific. Now, I want to wait until Chris is uh, back on with me to really get into Afghanistan since he is someone who has served over there and he really could give a much more in-depth view of, of the situation than myself. It, of course, deeply affected me just like everybody else seeing the Marines and Navy corpsmen that, that we lost over there and, uh, and the consequences of what many would call a hasty withdrawal. So uh, I, I want to wait until Chris is here and we could do a really in-depth dive with it. And, and maybe with uh, some other Afghanistan veterans, I think would be great. The other uh, far less important, of course, uh, elephant in the room, I, I guess I should address, is uh, what was going to be my move to Florida. Some of you saw me even post a picture while I was on the road there, and you figured by now I would be in Florida. That's why we pre-taped a whole bunch of shows, partially because of that, partially because Chris had some speaking engagements, and... I did end up driving out that way, packed my entire Jeep with all my stuff that I needed, and I ended up bailing out on the whole idea, which at the time was kind of uh, embarrassing to say, because if you've been listening to this show, I feel like a recurring theme for the past year or so has been where I'm going to move, because the fact is I was at a place that I really actually liked prior to the whole pandemic situation here on Long Island, and... I had no qualms at all. Everything was going great. And then that house was sold. And then the COVID-19 situation happened. And due to that, you would, if you live anywhere near the area, you may know that prices just on Long Island, just like Jersey, went up. So many people were leaving the city to go to these areas. And because of that, prices were ridiculous. So I figured I would wait it out. And then I started thinking... And I think I discussed all this on the show, thinking, all right, maybe I'll move to Arizona. And I visited my friend in Arizona. All right, maybe I'll stay close to home and go to Connecticut. But I always love when I visit Florida. So that was why I kind of settled on Florida. But in the in the few months leading up to the move, I really did not have a good feeling about it. And it really hit me actually on the drive there where I finally decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to get out of this situation and I'm just not going to go through with these plans, is that, quite honestly, what I would really miss is my friends and family here. And I, I think that's really important. And I, I think something I learned, especially over the past years, as much as I, 
sometimes think I'm a bit of an introvert and enjoy my time alone. I I really value that time with friends and family. And I think I think my dad in particular is the same way. My a lot of people don't have this and I do. And my dad certainly does. He still hangs out with a lot of guys he went to high school with. And as I'm recording this, he's visiting a, his, his college roommate in Martha's Vineyard. And they're, and they're having a great time with uh, with my mother and his wife. And, yeah, I, I think as you get older and, and you realize that your parents are getting older, you really value that stuff. And I wouldn't feel good about moving somewhere so far that I have to book a plane just to get home. And it just didn't sit sit well with me. It in, in the time leading up to it too, like I, I went out to see a UFC fight as I normally do with some of my college friends. Every month we'll go do that. And then when I came home, I, I saw one of my good friends from high school, and now we're booking a trip. Two of us, uh, another two guys I went to high school with, to the Adirondacks in next month. So I'll have to schedule the podcast for a different time because of that. But those are the times that you really cherish. And what I realized is I'm not as much of an introvert as I once thought I was. And I feel like in the past year, I've spent more than enough time alone <laughs> that I, I don't really uh, need to spend that much more time alone anymore. I Every now and again, sure. But I really uh, want to cherish those great times with friends, going to concerts, going to movies, going to lunch and stuff like that, or going to a driving range. I, I really enjoy all of that stuff. And, and that's what makes life great for me. I, I have also struggled with some mental health issues in, in the past. And I think the things that have gotten me through that are both friends, of course, but then family, having family here to talk to. And the fact that I would be out there with, yeah, there's a few people I know, but I don't, they're, they're not my great friends that I have here or my family members. And I could see that leading to other mental health issues. I actually haven't had any type of crazy anxiety in, in a long time, thank God. But I was starting to feel it again as I was going on this drive. And, and I said, why am I putting myself through this if it doesn't sit well with me? So, uh, yeah, I should also say when I originally thought of moving, there were really two reasons. As I said, the price of housing on Long Island get, getting really ridiculous. Hopefully that starts to decrease and if not, maybe I'll move to Connecticut or somewhere close. And then the other was just that everything was shut down in New York for a while, for a, for a really extended period of time, more so than other states. But now things have really gotten uh, back to normal for the most part. I've, I've been to a couple of concerts since and am out living my life out and about and, and enjoying. And so that whole appeal of going somewhere else wore off for me. And yeah, so long story short, I'm I'm going to be here for the foreseeable future, and it actually feels like a major relief for me. Uh, I'm excited to spend time here and really cherish that time with family and friends and go on some trips with family and friends and all of that good stuff. Uh, with that, though, we do have Andrews and Wilson. I think you guys are really going to dig this interview. And before I talk to Andrews and Wilson, I wanted to let you know that this show is sponsored by Bubs Naturals. I use Bubs Naturals all the time. I actually just uh, got some more because I used up all of my collagen protein powder. And if any of you guys are into fitness, I always we always say guys, gender neutral guys, women are into fitness. 
and you track your macronutrients on something like MyFitnessPal, you realize how hard it is to get that recommended 0.8 grams to one gram per pound of body weight uh, in protein in order to make those muscle gains and get that muscle recovery. And also, no matter how much protein you're eating, you're really not getting that collagen protein in your diet. So you you need to supplement with that if you want to get the benefits of collagen protein, which includes not only muscle recovery and strength, but it's also great for joint recovery. I've had recent emails and recent messages from listeners talking about how they've had joint issues and all different types of difficulties. And since using bubs, they, they are really turning a new leaf in their life and they're getting healthy again. And that means a lot to us. And of course, the, the name Bubs Naturals is in honor of Glenn Bub Doherty. Bub was an adventure seeker, a river guide, skier, Ironman competitor, fitness fanatic, chef, gardener, handyman, and an epic storyteller. Bub was a national hero, a Navy SEAL who saved lives and was always the life of the party and became a best friend to all who knew him. That spirit lives within each of us. So what is collagen? Collagen is the most abundant protein in the human body. It is literally the glue that holds our bodies together. Collagen is a blend of highly functional amino acids found in all of the body's connective tissue. And Bubs upcycles cowhide that would be wasted by leather tanneries, and they use that hide from pasture-raised and grass-fed cows. An enzyme bath breaks down the hide into molecules and boosts the amino acid profile. And of course, if you're someone into fitness, you know that that is what leads to those muscle gains and muscle recovery. The collagen is hydrolyzed into a powder. And yeah, after your early 20s, collagen production declines every year. Collagen is critical to the support and reconstruction of joints. It supports gut health and muscle recovery and promotes healthy skin, hair, and nails. So go to bubsnaturals.com and use the promo code BATTLELINE for 20% off, and you're going to see why so many of our listeners have become Bub's users and Bub's consumers for life now. It's just a great product. It's a great mission because they also give back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation with the sale of each. They give 10% back of all profits. Go to BubsNaturals.com. Use the promo code BATTLELINE for 20% off, and uh, the link for that is in the description. Support the brand. They're great. And the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation also supports uh, great efforts like getting the uh, children of veterans, of special operations, military veterans, scholarships to colleges, and other great things that, uh, that help the special operations community. That's what we're all about. That's what they're all about. And that's what Glenn Bub Doherty was all about. With that, we're going to get over to Brian Andrews and Jeff Wilson right here only on Battleline Podcast. So back on Battleline Podcast, guys who that you heard on uh, episode 59 back in November, Brian Andrews, Jeff Wilson, Navy veterans, and of course the authors of several series, but the newest of which you just have book one out for, which is really great, Dark Intercept. And for the people listening, this is going to be book one of the Shepherd series, and it's out September 7th. So for those listening on Monday, it's going to be out tomorrow on Tyndale Publishing. So with that, it's great to have you guys back on. I'm sorry that Chris is away doing speaking engagements and all that, but I'm, I'm glad to do this with you. Oh, we're glad to be here with you, Ian. And I, it'll go smoother without Chris, don't you think? 
<laughs> it's his loss. It's his loss. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess before we get into the book itself, what have you guys been up to? I, I know that there's been a lot of different works that you guys are involved in, as well as different projects and different ventures. So it seems you've been keeping pretty busy the last time I spoke to you, uh, whatever it was, nine months ago. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy, right? We've got these four series, so we're we're always working, always writing. You can't can't take a day off. We had the coffee thing. I think we sent you guys a bag of that coffee that uh, Bone Frog. We partnered with our good friend Navy Seal Tim Cruikshank, who's uh, promoting veterans' causes through his brand of Bone Frog Coffee, and so he did a Sons of Valor blend. You can see behind behind uh, Brian there. So we have, well, no one, no one is going to see it besides me, but right. okay. <laughs> we, have, we have this line of coffee and, and uh, all the proceeds are going to support veterans causes that we support and that Tim supports and then the books. And uh, we have a lot going on. It's busy, man. It's really busy. That's great. So let's get into, I guess, what inspired this particular new series, this book, because it's, it's different than what you guys have done in the past. There's in the past, there's definitely a faith angle to this book that wasn't seen in previous books. So it seems like you had an effort to do something a little bit different. And there's definitely a story behind the story when it comes to Dark Intercept. And I think it was sort of born, um, what most people don't realize is that this book was born not long after Tier 1. In fact, we had finished writing Tier 1 and we were starting on uh, sort of the next, thinking about what do we want to do next. And Jeff and I had this conversation and it was just, it was kind of a candid conversation. It wasn't, it wasn't like a strategic conversation. We were just talking because, you know, we're best friends. We talk every day. We get into all sorts of random tangents, but this one sort of kind of hit close to home. We were just saying, you know, I asked him, have you ever been in the presence of pure evil? Have you felt like pure evil? And uh, I'll let him answer that question but that was the genesis of this story yeah and the answer was yes you know deploying to iraq and afghanistan and seeing some of the horrific things that you see in war i think you see in war in general but in this war in particular some of the absolutely horrific things uh that we experienced that it just is difficult to explain as just the human condition you know what i mean like there's bad people but man even bad has a as a limit. And you see some of these absolute horrible things and it does make you believe in evil. And so, you know, people have been saying though, this is a change for you. Honestly, we don't really feel like it's a change. We actually feel like it's adding another layer. You know, uh, when we talked to you and Chris before, we talked about how passionate we are about writing real people into these, into these novels. You know, we want to reflect the people that we served with. We want to show them uh, as the heroic people they are, which means painting them as ordinary and flawed and with their own struggles. And so, as as Brian said, he posed that question, and that was my answer. And um, as you know, Ian, I lead a men's military ministry in Tampa, where we deal with these issues of seeing horrible things, and then you know that turn you turn that back and say, well, how can there be a God if this like that would allow this? to happen or why would he let this happen or that kind of thing. And so to us, this adds just another layer to that rich character uh, development that we try to do, where we try to reflect the real struggles that these people have, whether they're psychological, emotional, the physical trauma. And now in this, in this new series, adding that layer of the spiritual stuff 
um, you know, the, the crisis that you can have in your faith when you see bad things. And then the, from a very fun standpoint, this spiritual warfare element, you know, is there really a battle between good and evil in the background of all these things that we see, the war in Afghanistan, Iraq, World War II, these things that are truly horrific? Is there something else, something more spiritual going on? And that's a layer that we tried to put into this book. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, even though you're mentioning Iraq and Afghanistan, this is a book that takes place domestically, which I could bring the audience up to speed a little bit. The The book is centered around Navy SEAL Jedediah Johnson. His best friend's daughter has been kidnapped in broad daylight off the streets of Nashville. Um, so this is a guy who has seen combat, who has seen warfare, but he's back and he's he's in the streets of Nashville taking care of this issue and he's also running into some obstacles with the people on the ground there saying this isn't the type of guy that we want involved in this. Right. Yeah, most, most of our books take place uh, internationally. The other series, you know, the majority of the action is international. I like the fact that you keyed in on that, Ian, that, hey, we moved this series home. And this, this takes place in Nashville, the center of the country. Um, I lived in Nashville. You know, our, our publishers in Nashville and, um, you know, it, it really does create a different feel. You have this, you know, seal who's used to being overseas. It's funny to take a guy and have a fish out of water story with him being at home, right? You know, that's, we yeah. almost sort of flip that model on its head of, okay, he's home now. He's used to being with a team. He's used to being kitted up in the field, prosecuting enemies with this massive technical support you know, intelligence community and the, all the infrastructure of the U.S. military behind him. And now he gets asked by his estranged best friend, hey, our daughter's been kidnapped. Nobody can find her. Can you help? And, you know, his first thought is, what am I supposed to do? You know, how am I going to help? And uh, but being the, the, the guy, the type of person that he is, he just can't say no. What what inspired the kidnapping theme? Is it the rise of uh, awareness for the human trafficking issue? Was it anything like that? Not specifically that, but you know, if you're going to paint a picture where these there's you know real evil out there and you have to combat it, obviously when you involve children, it becomes quite horrific, right? And uh, Brian and I both have daughters about the age of Sarah Beth in the story, um, but also it had added this element of you know what are they really looking for? What are these, uh, what are these dark forces or this, the enemy, what are they looking for, uh, from this young girl, Sarah Beth? And we don't want to spoil anything because it, it does become apparent in the book, but, um, that sort of added another layer to that fish out of water, right? So yeah, fish out of water is used to being in Iraq and now he's here. And, um, also the idea that we tend to think, especially for the last 20 years, as, as, uh, the wars in the Middle East wind down, that, the evil and the battle and the fight is over there. And I think that's a dangerous mindset. And so we were very intentional about bringing it here because, you know, there's bad everywhere. There's evil everywhere. There's enemy everywhere. And we didn't want it to be one more story over there. We wanted it to feel personal and intimate for the reader. And nothing is more intimate than feeling like this kind of thing is going on in your own town. And so it was very intentional uh, that we did that. But uh, that was the same sort of thing that we had in mind for Sarah Beth, making it intimate and personal. 
Yeah, and I should throw out there, it's getting some very high praise from different veteran authors in the genre, guys like Don Bentley. You'll see their quotes on the book itself when you pick it up on Monday or if you're pre-ordering it right now, or I should say picking it up on Tuesday, pre-ordering it now on Monday when people hear this. Uh, yeah, the, the thing that I, that stood out to me about the book is it's definitely very much a faith-based book, but a lot of the times when you see something in the faith-based category and you guys are using scripture and all that, it lacks the authenticity of what you're going for. And you guys having the background that you do, and I should remind the audience, Jeff being a firefighter, paramedic, jet pilot, diving instructor, former actor, and a combat surgeon, and Brian being a nuclear engineer and serving as an officer on a fast attack submarine in the Pacific, as well as holding a master's degree in business from Cornell. But specifically, the veteran aspect that you have, it, it in no way lacks that authenticity because you guys get all the terms correct, and you can tell that this is written by guys who have been there and done that. You know, when we interviewed uh, Brad Thor on the podcast, not necessarily you guys, but Marcus Luttrell or Morgan Luttrell, he'll, he'll meet with them and say, hey, does this is this written correctly? Am I getting all of the uh, all the language proper? And for you guys, that's not a problem because you've you've been overseas and and you've been in combat. Yeah, having the opportunity to serve in special warfare obviously gives us some insight for writing that. But how do you combine that with the face element, the faith element, and make it come across realistic? That was a bit of a challenge. And I will tell you that. We really owe a lot to Tyndale House and in particular, Karen Watson, uh, the publisher for fiction and our editor over there for investing in this, because from the very first discussion, that's what we said. We, we sort of view this series as uh, a series that is changing the face of Christian fiction because we didn't want to write that trite, sterilized, you know, maternalistic story. We told them up front, look, if we're going to do this, it's going to be an Andrews and Wilson action adventure. It's going to have realism. It's going to be gritty. It's going to be violent. Um, but we want to add these layers in a realistic way. Um, and they allowed us to do that. And we're very, very grateful for that because, look, this is the rea this is reality. There are people yeah. with faith that have their faith shaken in combat. There are people that have other traumas and that shakes their faith. There are people that don't have a, a faith that is shaken, that have a strong faith. And guess what? They went and saw the last Bourne movie. They read Brad Taylor and Brad Thor and all of our friends, right? So you don't have to be one or the other. Like as, as faith-based people, we live in this world and function in this world. And so do our characters. So that was what we tried to do. We don't, it has a faith element, but we don't want it to be a preachy story. We want it to be an entertaining, fun, exciting story that makes you think about certain elements. And so I really have to thank Karen Watson and, and the team at Tyndale um, for letting us do that. Don't you think, Brian? Like with that, it, we couldn't have done it just anywhere. This was the right team to do it with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've talked about this in some of our written interviews too, that it's a risk. It was a risk for them, right? It's a risk for them moving outside their comfort zone. And you know, for some of the readers, they're going to look at, you got the guys that wrote tier one, you know how many F-bombs are in that book? You know how much violence is in that book? Are you sure you got the right guys? And um, we think that they did. And I think it has to do with trust. They understood that, hey, these guys are great storytellers. And so we can write a series for them that fits, like Jeff said, it's still going to be just as authentic. You don't need 150 F-bombs to make the story authentic, right? The story is about the characters. And, you know, like I, I want to just sort of dovetail into something else that Jeff said, which sure. is, that, you know, 
we are storytellers and we are writing fiction. We are writing to entertain. But, you know, at the same time, we've built our brand and our platform around this idea that our characters are very principle-based actors and they embody the types of um, qualities, you know, that we try to embody as ourselves, but also that we want to inspire in other people. And if you think about that, if you think about when you pick up a book and it's a really good book, why do you care? You know, what is it about that character, that story that makes you want to keep turning the pages? And for me, it's that I feel like I'm going along with this person who is facing moral crises, who's facing the struggle, facing tough decisions, and they're hard decisions, hard choices, and they're making them and they're taking action and they're trying to be a better version of themselves. And so when you finish that book, you think to yourself, wow, you know, Jed did something really hard for him. He was very heroic. Maybe the next time I'm faced with a situation where I have to make a choice between serving myself or doing the right thing, I choose to do the right thing because I want to be a better person too. What was the book outside of your comfort zone, Brian? Because I know for Jeff, you wrote books in the faith-based category prior, if I remember correctly, right? And uh, for for you, Brian, you you hadn't explored that territory. Was this more something Jeff said, "Hey, I want to do this together as a partnership"? Was it something that you were eager to jump into? What I thought was great is that it was something new for me, um, but I knew it was something that was important to Jeff, and and there was I knew it would be difficult probably for him to confront some of these issues and secretly probably difficult for me too. And I thought it was great that like he fully embraced the idea of, Hey, bringing, bringing me along. Cause I don't lead a men's ministry. I mean, that is something that he does. That's uh, fantastic and wonderful. And I've attended some of his sessions and been in some of those conversations. It's a real passion. And so for me, it opened my eyes to a whole nother uh, you know, just a whole nother view of storytelling. So I think it did get me out of my comfort zone, but it's been a fantastic experience. Yeah. So I'm wondering, Jeff, like what is that battle within, if you want to describe it a little bit more in depth between good and evil and, and working in a violent environment, as you've talked about in your books and previous books with these fiction characters who are based off real people who have served in combat to some extent, uh, have you experienced it? And, and yeah, I'd like to just dig a little bit deeper into that with guys who have to see extreme violence and have to be around stuff that is totally ungodly and yet still be a person of faith. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, that's, that's a real thing, what you're describing. And it's a very, very common thing. It's why there is a men's military ministry at this church of 12,000 in Tampa, uh, because there's a need. You, you know, you see things overseas, and especially in a war like this and, and others that we've had. It's not unique to this war, but you see things over there that you can't unsee that are just so horrifying. Um, and so and and you're sometimes asked to do things that are counter to your nature. And it does bring up these questions, these if questions, these why questions. Um, and what I found is that it's very common to have questions about faith, make you look in and say, well, do I really believe that in light of what I've seen? And um, to make it more personal and really answer your question, the answer is yes. I, I had this struggle for a number of years. Um, I, had a, I had a very strong faith. It was an active part of my life. And I didn't, I didn't walk away from it. I didn't stop believing in God, but it got put on a shelf and was not a part of my life 
because I just felt like I've got questions. I don't have time to answer them. I'm in a high tempo uh, deployment schedule here. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I'm going to circle back to this later. And years later, even after I stopped deploying, I ran into a friend of mine, Mario Martin, who was with SEAL Team 5, uh, who also lives in Tampa. And we had a conversation uh, at a church event and found that we both were struggling with this same thing. It's like we're going through the motions. I don't really feel this intimacy anymore with my faith. Why is that? And that's what this ministry was born out of. And as a result, we encounter, you know, dozens and dozens of men every month that have these same problems and questions. And so the opportunity to put that element, that crisis in faith, not of faith, not like I don't believe in God. I just, you go through this season where you're like, I mean, he's probably still there, but I don't know if he's asleep at the wheel or if he just hates me or he hates all of us. Like it's not that loving God stroking the lamb with the perm that you remember from the (laughs) painting in, in Sunday school, right? Like, where's that dude? I want that dude to come. Um, So that's the struggle. That's the struggle I had. It it took a long time, a number of years to work through it. And so we tried to paint in Jedediah Johnson that this guy that had this experience, saw this thing and he didn't stop believing. It just sort of walked away and went in a different direction and decided to not think about it anymore. And so um, it was fun and cathartic, honestly, to write that character with Brian, bringing his insight uh, to the character as well. It helped me. Um, it helped me develop some things, probably in my own life, that still needed a little work. So, yeah, it was good. I would assume it has something to do with the fact that war and foreign policy and all these things involved are are very complicated. And I think a lot of people join the military with the idea of they, rightfully so, they want to be the good guys and they want to fight for good. And sometimes it's not that simple. Or you're doing bad things when you're the good guy. Sometimes executing foreign policy, the violence of action that's required in this world, especially in the military and especially in the special operations community, it's a little bit counter to just human nature. Forget about the faith element. Faith element adds an additional burden uh, that is eventually a a cushion for you. But um, it's not normal. If you read uh, Grossman's books on killing and that sort of those those things, he's got three of them out. it's not a natural state to be have your life threatened psychologically, and it's not a natural state to take a life psychologically. It's why in World War II in Korea, they had such a high rate of people that wouldn't pull the trigger, right? Because you can't really prepare someone for what it feels like to take a human life. And so, um, you know, these are, these are real, genuine struggles that people have uh, that impact them psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so that's what we sort of tried to tried to pull through here. But you're right. It's not It's not natural. It's not normal. It's not what you think of when you're a kid and watch it on TV. When you do it in real life, it's horrible. Uh, and it affects you deeply. Was this, was this something, and I'm sorry that I'm staying focused on Jeff. We'll get into <laughs> everything. But now I'm wondering, because just from what you said previously, what when you joined the military, was this something you struggled with as a person of faith to say, I'm going to go over there if if you do go into combat at some point and possibly have to pull the trigger and do things that are counter to what you've been taught. No, I don't think so. You know, for not for me. I mean, I think for some people, perhaps. But um, and I had done things before the military. I worked in other areas of the government and left that to sort of get to a, a world of peace and find a peaceful existence before 9-11 happened. So I had had some experience in that violent area of the world before. But 
Um, for me, there's no, there's not really a moral or a faith dilemma in uh, defending your country, defending your family, defending your community. You know, people say, oh, you know, thou shalt not kill. It's pretty clear. It's like, well, that's not actually what it says. If you, if you know the original Hebrew, there's many words for kill in this language. And one of them is murder. And one of them is, you know, unjustified killing. And one is justified killing. And it clearly means murder. And what I usually tell people is like, if they're like, you know, don't you feel a moral conflict with taking a life even in battle? And the answer is, especially if it's a parent, you say, okay, let's say there was someone with a knife to the throat of your five-year-old daughter and you had the opportunity to take a single shot and take that life and save your daughter, would you have any dilemma? And almost nobody would say there's a dilemma there. That's It's just so cut and dry, right? It's so black and white. Innocent daughter, crazy killer. Of course you would do it. Would it be easy? No, but you would do it. To me, that's the same moral question. If I'm going to stop people from coming here and killing innocents or or hurting people in my country or hurting my family, my community, then it's justified. So it's not a moral dilemma to be part of it, but actually doing it is different. There's no question that that causes a psychological trauma um, for any normal person. Like if you feel nothing when you do it, you're probably a sociopath, but um, I would imagine. Yeah. So it's, it's not that you don't feel bad about it. It's just that you don't feel it's unjustified. They're, they're two very different things in my mind. I know I asked you guys about this when I had you on uh, with Chris, of course, back on episode 59 in November. And guys can check that out after this interview and listen to that in the archive. But I'm wondering if there was a difference between this and previous books in terms of the writing process. I'd love to hear the actual writing process, because I think it's difficult for just one person to write a book, to be a team and to write a book on a particular uh, subject like this with a particular uh, uh, focus on faith has, has got to make things more difficult. We use the same process. Um, we started this book, like I said earlier in the interview, we started it just after tier one. So that was very early in our, our co-author partnership. And we wrote 50, 60 pages, something like that. And then we had to stop and, and shifted gears and went back to, to other things. And so when we came back to this story, um, you know, we had already really developed our process and we used that same methodology to write this book. Well, and the other thing to add to that is that, you know, we're focusing here on the faith elements. and I'm glad we are because it's not something we get an opportunity to talk about a lot. But the book itself, while that thread is hugely important to us and I think is something that makes the, the series special, if you pick up this book and you've read Andrews and Wilson and you read this book, you're reading an Andrews and Wilson book. There's action, there's adventure, there's covert ops, there's the character relationships. The, the actual book and the process, it's an entertaining, high octane type book like all of our stuff. It just has this additional thread. And so it lent itself very well to the normal technique. We swapped BOVs back and forth. We both wrote a bit of everything and um, rewrote everything that the other person. Had. So it was all the same techniques. Um, and the book itself, I think, if you've read any of our other stuff, so you pick this up, you'd probably go, oh, yeah, that's an Andrews and Wilson book. Do you, do you know the outcome before you finish the book? Do you know what's going to happen to that little girl? Or are you kind of along for the ride the same way all of us are? 
It's sort of both. Would you agree, Brian? Like, so when we, when we start, we have a, you know, we do that. What if question, like he was saying, we have this arc, this idea. Um, we don't always have the ending in mind or even an idea of what the ending is, but even if we do, it's not uncommon for it to change by the time we actually write it. Uh, Brian described it a really cool way about how the characters do it. What, what did you say to, uh, to Jose when we were talking about that? Well, I just said that I think that the characters, you know, they guide you because it's almost like this chess match. You know, the antagonist a lot of times is driving the story. So the antagonist does something bad and the hero has to respond. And so we don't always know, uh, you know, the machinations of these characters until that chess match starts. So we've usually planned out one or two chess moves of the story. But then once we get started, and especially because we've got our two brains, you know, Jeff always likes to joke that between the two of us, you've got one good writer. So I think (laughs) what happens here is, you know, as this chess match unfolds, and one character does their thrust and parry with the other, then we're like, ooh, you know what would make it better or more, you know, worse for the hero or more thrilling is if this happened. And then we have to figure out how the, you know, the hero is going to respond to the latest move. And so, like Jeff said, we don't usually know where that ending is going to take us. We have a general idea of, you know, kind of where we want to go, but it makes it a lot more fun for us as the characters sort of lead us through the story. Yeah, that's right. It's all for us. It's like you're excited to sit down and write because you want to find out what's going to happen. I mean, that's a, yeah. little, a little bit of an exaggeration maybe. But I will say that over time, we've gotten better about that. When we first started writing together, we probably arced out stuff and outlined stuff way more than we do now. And after the third or fourth time of realizing that the end product didn't look anything like that, I think we got a little more comfortable and relaxed about you know, being a little more vague and just seeing where it goes. I know it's uh, a, a joke to say between the both of you that that you, both of your brains, you make one good writer. But I am wondering, is there one thing that Jeff really excels in uh, and one thing he struggles with and, and vice versa? I think I'm really good at the writing and Brian's good at the interviews. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, there we both have strengths and weaknesses, and honestly, they sort of blur together. I'm not trying to be evasive, but um, you know, Brian is really good at bringing in rich detail, uh, geopolitical stuff, and uh, outside forces that affect the characters. He he's really good at some of the, you know, taking a cool plot and adding details that just bring it up to the next level. Um, I definitely rely on him for that. I don't know that I bring anything special. Um, but what I did you bring? Well, you got to stroke his ego a little bit now. No, no, no. We, we have strengths and weaknesses, and I think it just it just sort of unfolds. I don't know. And we have um, pretty diverse backgrounds. I think that's what's kind of cool about us. Um, I mean, I was a psychology major in college, and then I went to be a nuclear engineer. So I've been interested in the human mind and how – Minds worked, but I'm also interested in machines. And like Jeff said, you know, once I moved past how things worked, I started getting interested in geopolitics and how big systems work. So I think that that curiosity, you know, really helps drive, you know, our craft. And if you're not interested in people and you're not interested in outcomes and geopolitics, um, then you're not going to be as good of a writer because it's that curiosity 
that really allows you to drive down inside these characters. And I mean, I, you know, Jeff was te teases me about it, but you know, sometimes I'll make these Meyer Myers Briggs personality profiles for the characters because that's cool. You know, anybody that's familiar with psychology knows that. Hey, you know what? We're not all alike. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's probably pretty obvious now on social media too. We don't all think the same. You could have two people born in the exact same neighborhood that grow up right next to each other. And just because of their, their psychology, their Myers-Briggs, they interpret the world completely different. And so between the two of us, all of our experiences and the fact that we both have different Myers-Briggs profiles, you know, we actually create characters that are not like ourselves. You know, I think that's one of the mistakes that many writers have is that every character sort of feels like a different version of them. And especially when you read authors who've, you know, their book 10, 12, 11 in the series, something like that, it starts to really feel like, I think I've read this story before. This, this character reminds me of so-and-so and so-and-so. And so one of the things that we try to do, and we're very intentional about it, is making sure that, yeah, this character, this villain, he or she is different. They have different profile. They think differently. They are not going to say the same things, do the same things as a villain or a hero in one of our previous books. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me, because even in real life, when you come across one of these people that is like one of your characters, someone who kidnaps someone, they, they might be very introverted. They might be the guy who stays in their house all day and plots things, or they're the guy who's super outgoing and knows everybody in the community that no one would ever suspect. So I think it is important to put all that in the book. Yeah, and they have their own motives, right? And and then the, the crucial thing, I think we said this on our last, last time we were on your show, um, the bad guys don't think of themselves as bad guys. And that's something that's important to go into a story. They're, the, everybody's the good guy in their mind, right? So, so when you look at tier one, those uh, the people from Iran and Vivac in the first three books, they were fighting for their country and what was going to be best for their family and their people in their minds. And so if you accept that and then write from that perspective, instead of just doing, you know, the bald headed guy, stroking the cat in his, in his evil lair. If you can get away from that trite cliche and give them real motivations and relationships and stuff, it makes the story a lot richer and a lot more fun, but it also highlights those differences that Brian's talking about. Yeah. We've seen some reviews on Sons of Valor. Um, it's doing very well on Audible right now. And um, we've seen a lot of reviews lately that people will say, I haven't read a book like this before. I haven't read a book where, I get to see the other side and other, the, the villains are portrayed very uh, humanistically. And uh, that's a great compliment because we come to care about those characters too, uh, as we write them, because like Jeff said, uh, they're motivated based on their own circumstances. And you can start to feel yourselves, you know, after, you know, the old expression, you don't know somebody till you've walked a mile in their shoes. We force you as the reader to walk a mile in our antagonist's shoes. Uh, and then you, you start to relate to them a little bit after a while. Yeah, I, I understand how, as uh, Jeff said in the arc of their story, the terrorists could be the hero in his story. Because if they've been brainwashed since a young age to think death to America and that the U.S. is evil and, and they're the great Satan, we need to crush them. I, I understand that from that perspective, uh, from their perspective, I should say, obviously, I mean, should go without saying, 
that that's incorrect. But uh, in this story, how does that work? I don't get how a, uh, a kidnapper yeah. in the U.S. kidnapping a little one. girl could be the hero in in their mind. That that does sound like pure evil, no matter how what way you cut it. Yeah. So in this story, it is different, right? And that, that was a bit, <laughs> that was a bit of a challenge because now you have in this world people have chosen light versus dark, good versus evil, and they know which side they're on. And their person, we do try to give certain key characters motivations for why they made the choices that they made. And in fact, we even have some of our, our uh, antagonists have doubts and uh, I don't want to spoil anything for the upcoming books two and three, but there, there are characters that we come and go in the series that are bad, but you sort of start to learn about them and how they made the choice to be bad. But you're right. That's an interesting observation. Ian. in this story, you know, there's, they're not fighting for their country. They've made a very clear choice to pursue evil rather than good. And so how to do that without falling into those stereotypes was a little more challenging. Yeah. yeah this book is more archetypal, I would say, yeah. in that regard. I, I was curious, through the, uh, through the whole situation with this pandemic, the past year and a half, there's actually been a ton of books put out by veteran authors or authors in the thriller genre, books by Brad Thor, by Jack Carr. What have you guys been reading when you're not writing your own stuff? Mm. That's a great question. I'm an audiobook junkie, so I love to listen to audiobooks. And I tend to listen to books uh, off genre. You know, we we will be reading, you know, we'll read our, our peers' books. We read uh, Don Bentley's latest, uh, Target Acquired, which is an amazing book. We read those to help support other veteran authors and give endorsements and the like. But for pleasure, I try to listen to off-genre books simply because I just want to get a, a sample of what's going on out there in the entire, you know, fiction universe. So science fiction is, I'm a big fan of science fiction, listen to some fantasy and also, you know, do some suspense as well. Yeah. And for me on the, on those rare days, you know, what, writing four series at the same time does not afford a great deal of pleasure reading time these days, which is actually my only real regret about the pace we're writing at. Um, but like Brian, I, I'm mine's a, a real mix. I, I, you can see Don's book right here. Uh, this is one of my favorite books of the year. Uh, so we do read that. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read uh, Tom Satterley's uh, book about the all secure foundation and Jen, his wife's book. Um, about, you know, sort of that secondary PTS. Uh, so I do read a lot of nonfiction. And then I also read a lot of supernatural thrillers. That's sort of where I started. I'm uh, about halfway through Stephen King's new book, Billy Summers. So it's a mix. It's a real mix. I like Brian. I like some of the techno thrillers and the, and the technology based stuff as well, because it just stimulates me to think about things. It's hard to separate fiction from reality in that genre nowadays because things happen so fast. Yeah. And, and now I'm curious if, if you're reading Stephen King's latest, is he still the writer that people remember him as? I, I don't know if he's had as big a hit since maybe the 90s, I, but I'm also not that embedded in that world. Yeah, I will say that, you know, just I don't follow his sales numbers. And I think he's probably doing just fine financially. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that uh, as a reader uh, and as a writer reader, you know, who see, appreciates the craft maybe in a, in a different way. I think he's as good or better with every single book. Um, he has he has over the last several years moved away from the 
super in your face, horrific horror type genre. And now he's got these supernatural threads that are almost more background notes. Uh, that probably started actually 10 years ago or more. Um, but yeah, so he's, he's every bit as good. I will say that um, he's probably the best character author I've ever read. Like he develops a character through relationship and conversation, something we try to do um, to a level where you swear you grew up with that guy. It's unbelievable how he can make a, a person that he made up come live on the page. It's pretty, pretty incredible. That definitely is. Um, so I, I, moving on to something else that I definitely wanted to get into uh, beyond the book itself. We were speaking before we recorded, of course, uh, 20 years since 9-11. This is going to be the first show that we put out. Uh, well, it will be a few days uh, before 9-11 because we'll be putting this out on the 6th. So the, the upcoming Saturday will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11, of course, um, which coincides now with the withdrawing from Afghanistan, which was originally going to be uh, like a commemorative day, I guess you could say, of, of pulling out on 9-11. Things certainly did not go as smoothly as some people expected in this administration and, and elsewhere. I would just uh, love to hear your thoughts on 9-11. Uh, where were you? And and also uh, what where things go from here? And, and also serving in Afghanistan, how you feel about uh, where things are headed. I know that's a lot of questions in one, but but feel free to take your time with it. Well, so I think, you know, I, I remember where I was on 9-11. I was actually, a, a, you know, I'm a physician as well. And so I was in my surgical training at the time. I was a naval reservist because I wanted to continue serving, uh, but had decided to take my life in a different direction. And um, I was actually uh, in an operating room when people came in and said, hey, something horrible's happened. So I remember vividly, as everyone does, like nothing special about me there. Uh, and also nothing special, like so many people um, that changed my life that day. I think the next day I was on the phone with a reserve detailer and telling him how I want to go back on active duty. And he was like, oh, we'll get you mobilized. I was like, you don't understand. I'm going back on active duty, regular commission, all that stuff. So, I mean, it was something that changed the entire course of my life. I mean, I'm not working as a physician now, partly because of that, um, because, you know, all the years that I spent deployed, it just changed the way I looked at the world. So 20 years, it's shocking to think about, isn't it? Um, the idea that there are people that are uh, on that last plane out who weren't even born, perhaps, on 9-11. Yeah. Um, many, yeah, many for sure. That it's twenty years later, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. there's eighteen year olds, nineteen year olds, plenty sure. of them. My son, some, some of those guys, some of those guys who died were not born. Absolutely, my son is my oldest son is twenty one, and uh, he was one, you know, on nine eleven, one, 13 months old. Um, so it's just crazy because it feels in some ways like we've never not been at war, and in other ways it feels like nine eleven was two weeks ago, right? It just how time just sort of mixes all together. I think it's a difficult time because of the timing of all that's happened in Afghanistan. Um, Brian and I are highly intentional about being publicly politically agnostic to the extent that that's possible. Uh, we tend to focus more on the veterans and the issues that these situations create for them. And that's a big concern for both of us. You know, we're in contact with people from our military community all the time. And it's been crazy the last few weeks, the impact this has had on people. I'm concerned about the suicide rate going up again. I'm concerned about veterans devaluing 
the service that they did uh, serve, serving their country during this time because they see, you know, Afghanistan and where it is today. And they're like, was it worth it? You know, I lost a lot of friends in Afghanistan. And those questions come to my mind, too. But I think that the struggle is to force them out and to realize that, you know, less than 1% of people answer the call of their nation to serve today. And when you take that when you take that call and you put it into action, you are serving a higher purpose. You're serving not, you're not serving an administration. You're serving the nation as a people. And that's something to be proud of. And we kept our country safe, safer than it was before 9-11 for 20 years. And so to the veterans out there, we would say, look, you need to, you need to separate yourself from the politics and be proud of having answered the call. Be proud, not just of having served your country, but having served your teammates, having been there for each other, having formed a brotherhood and been willing to both kill and die for the man next to you, for the woman next to you. Um, that's a message I think that we want to get out on this anniversary, because I think that people are struggling right now because of the chaos in Afghanistan to put their service and their their trauma and their loss uh into context of where the world is now. And I do worry about it. So I hope that people listening, if you're a veteran or a family of a veteran, you got to be in community right now. You got to reach out to teammates. You got to reach out to fellow veterans. You got to reach out to or service organizations like the All Secure Foundation, the Seal Legacy Foundation, Wounded Warrior. There's so many out there. Please be in community as you transition emotionally and psychologically through this period, because it's hard. It's hard for me. Um, and it's hard for, I think, all veterans who serve there. So I guess that's my soapbox for today, Ian. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to that, Brian, where, where you were, where, where your wife was 20 years ago and where things are headed now? I don't think I can top what Jeff just said. I mean, I, we've spent a lot of time talking about it, and I feel like that's I – feel, I, I feel the same way. I hope that you know the, the message that he communicated is something that we both talked – ad nauseum about. It is difficult. It's very difficult. And I think that personally, when I think about Afghanistan, you know, I think one of the things that people are the most frustrated about or upset about is, you know, the fact that they feel like, you know, uh, you know, people were left behind or we didn't do service to the people that have helped us throughout the, the conflict. And I think that, you know, we have to remember that, you know, we, we were never trying to turn Afghanistan into a state of the United States. I mean, it's its, it's own country and, and the Taliban was there before we came. And, and I don't I, but I'll, if I could jump in there, I feel like there's some people who were trying to do that. And people will say that's why we're in the position that we're in, where it wasn't a mission to just take out terrorists. And it did become an, a mission to nation build. And that's why it was a 20 year mission as opposed to several months or a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I just think that there's certain problems, certain situations when you get into them, I think you realize this is not exactly, this is much more complicated than I thought it would be. And I think that's one of the reasons that we had consecutive administration after administration that struggle with how do we extricate ourselves from this situation? And I think, you know, to circle back to what Jeff said, you know, when you're a veteran, when you're someone that's serving there, you 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 feel you feel the mission you know in your soul you're there and you're you're doing your best but you don't have you know you're not the decision maker at the highest level and yeah. so it's difficult to say you know i think there's a lot of guilt and self blame 
but I think that it's some in some respects it's it's a little bit misplaced because you are part of a, a nation's policy. It's not it's not our individual. We don't we're not empowered to make our own individual policy as military servicemen and women. Oh, absolutely. When we had uh, Marine uh, Recon Marine Rudy Reyes on the show, he was very passionate about that as well. He said, you know, we don't make foreign policy. We just carry it out. We, we have nothing to do with that. So I think a lot of guys who are on the ground would agree with that. Um, but where, where were you uh, on, on 9-11-2001? I, was, uh, I, had, I had separated from active duty at that point, and I was in business school with my wife. And I remember we were studying at the time when, when the towers were hit. And I, I, I remember getting lightheaded and, and having to sit down as I watched the tower fall. And um, it, it just, it, 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 like Jeff said, it was a, a paradigm changing event, I think, for every single American. Yeah. Did, did you guys with your background think terrorism right away? Because I could tell you that for me, I was a teenager, I was in high school and terrorism was not really a part of the vernacular of the American public the way it is today. And I, I remember when we first heard it, I was in a classroom with some friends and the first thing we thought was, oh, it was, the, and we also didn't see it. We didn't know the size of the plane. Was this a drunk pilot? That was the first thing that came to mind. It really wasn't terrorism. I think by the time I saw the video, you know, the second plane had hit. And so it was instantly in my mind, it was a, it was a terrorist attack. And, um, I think, you know, I was a little bit older than you. So, you know, I, of course. <laughs> we have, we had this same exact building attacked once before by a terrorist organization. Yeah. We had the coal that had happened, uh, what it felt like a long time ago, but wasn't like it was, it was right then. Right. So there was a lot going on. Uh, you had Lebanon, you had the t- attack on the Marine barracks. You had, I mean, there was so much going on in the world. No one really believed it could happen here, but I think that, uh, Anybody that was tuned in, anybody that had any time in the military at all, when you saw the second plane, it, there was what else could it be, right? Like you can sort of say, I don't know how one anybody could accidentally crash a plane into a tower, but you didn't initially think of terrorism. But when the second one hit, I mean, what else is there at that point, right? Of course, of course. Did did you guys know anyone in the towers? Uh, I, you know, a, a family friend of mine was Chris Quackenbush, and I'm looking to make sure that I get the the year right. But yeah, he was born in uh, in 1957 and died there in the tower. And then the crazy thing is, and he was one of those hedge fund guys. And the thing was, when when you're young, everybody who's, who's an adult is is older, and then you realize his age, and you're like, man, he was such a young guy to have that happen. And, and he was a guy who, although he did very well for himself, really helped out other people. He had these amazing seats behind home plate for the Mets, and he would bring less fortunate kids to those games and, and do a lot with, with his wealth that he acquired with helping other people. Um, so that was a, a huge loss, I think, for, for my family, of course, and, and more so his family. Did you guys lose? I mean, of course, you lost people in the subsequent wars, but did you lose anyone uh, in the Pentagon or, in, or, or on that plane or, or in the towers? Not, not anyone intimate for me, you know, but it was maybe a degree of separation at the most. Like every, and I think that's true for most people because the number was so high between the Pentagon and, and then New York being New York. Um, everybody was only a degree or two of separation from someone, right? So if you didn't know someone personally, 
you had a close friend or relative who knew someone personally. And so uh, while I, the, no names jump to mind, that, that's, I remember that. I remember it's like, I didn't know anyone, but this friend and this friend did. And so, you know, I knew people who were at the Pentagon that day, but were not in that wing. Um, and so they were not uh, directly affected, but I certainly knew a handful of people uh, that were there that day. Um, but I think because of the number, everybody was a degree or two at most. And so it, that's what made it so intimate for the whole country, I think. Any Anyone for you, Brian? Uh, no, like Jeff said, no one directly, but I was at, like I said, I was in business school at Cornell at the time, which is in New York. And so uh, as this happened unfolding, there were a number of my peers who had either worked at those companies, had direct, you know, had, had bosses there or, or family members. So it hit, it hit uh, the business school pretty hard. And then, you know, yeah, for, I, I would imagine for us, the only thing that we had, you know, we didn't have anyone directly affected that was intimate with us, but we didn't know that at first, right? That was the worst part uh, of that day is waiting to hear about different people. And for me, my brother's an airline pilot. He actually, had uh, taken off out of New York um, 30 minutes or so. I can't remember the exact time, but it was within an hour of, of that, maybe even less than 30 minutes. And it, he was still climbing to altitude. So it had to be just a few minutes. And um, he was immediately rerouted. We learned all this later. But what we knew at the time was that my brother was flying and he was in the air somewhere and this had happened in New York. And so my, I do remember my mother uh, being in a panic for a very short period of time. Like could Randy have been involved? Um, might, might he be gone? And he was able to communicate with her very, very quickly. Although he was um, airborne for a ridiculous period of time. You hear about airplanes getting forced down and everybody was supposed to land right away, but where they were rerouting them out of New York he felt like he was in the air forever, like because um, you had to go somewhere else before he landed. But um, I do remember that feeling of, you know, my mom getting in touch. By the time she had let me know that he had been flying, he was already down. So I didn't have to struggle with it. But I think it was a struggle for my mom. Yeah, well, well thank God he was OK. Uh, going back to the, those guys that we lost just a few days ago uh, in Bagram, the, the thing that I think really hits you is you go back to 9-11 and when we went into Afghanistan and, and I could even say being in high school at the time, the country was very gung ho about going into there. The country was very united with our president. It's something that you really haven't seen since. And I think it's it's crazy that we lost these really young guys because of the fact that I think from their perspective, they see the attitude towards the war now. And it, it's hard to say, but a lot of people who served uh, that I speak to will tell you that it's a lost cause and and they don't feel as gung-ho as as we did 20 years ago about the fact that we're there. I don't I don't know if you wanted to add anything to it, but I, I just think that's that's what makes it, you know, a shame is that, that these guys are there. And it's it's not necessarily for a cause that they may have believed in the same way as those guys who initially went in there other than for serving their country. Yeah, I, I hear you. I think that, um, you know, to me, there's two elements to it. One is that the idea that these these guys were and girls were also young, that their emotional investment was different. Not that they weren't as passionate 
as about their patriotism and their desire to serve. As we hear these stories come out, we're hearing about incredible young men and women, you know, uh, who want to serve their country, serve their their fellow Americans and their community and the world. Um, so it's not that they didn't have that level of passion, but they didn't have that intimate relationship of remembering where they were on 9-11, right? That is a different thing. And to me, the other element is, and this is just horrifying, no matter where you're talking about or when, the idea that someone has to be the last to die in a conflict, right? There's that last casualty that's always going to be the case. And um, it's, it's just nothing worse than you can think of than being the last casualty of a, of a war winding down um, and that they were so young and, and uh, just starting out their lives for sure. That just made it even more horrible. Um, it's a very emotional thing. It's hard to, it's hard to think about. It's hard to talk about. You see these parents on the news now talking about their kids and it's just devastating. It's easy to get into a political narrative based on your personal politics and be on one side of the fence or the other. Um, but if ever there was a time for Americans to just come together and just say, you know what, we all have our opinion about how it was done, should it have been done, when should it have been done, how it should have been done. First of all, it's not political at all to agree it was done horribly. Like I think there's almost no, there's no politics involved in that. And it's not a partisan thing. The way it was done was, was horrible. Uh, and obviously the outcome speaks for itself, but um that doesn't mean that our conversation about loss has to be political. We lost young men and women who were serving their country. It should be about that and nothing more. If you start pulling politics into it, I think it almost dishonors the memory of those men and women because they were there to serve all of us. Uh, you put the uniform on not to serve your Democratic Party or not to serve the Republican Party. You serve. You put that uniform on to serve your community, your family and your nation outside of politics. And I think we do a disservice to their memory when we make it political. Yeah, I, I would agree. Although it's, and I, I personally agree with what you're saying, but it's also hard when you listen to some of the families because they have every right to feel the way that they do. And for some of them, it is political. Um, I used to work on Andrew Wilkow's show on Sirius XM. And I know one of the mothers of one of those Marines called into his show and she went into a very politically uh, heated tirade. And I may not agree with your, her. You may not either. Um, at the same time, I would never feel comfortable saying they don't have the right to feel that way when it's their son. So. Of course. Of course. And I think everyone should be giving them a pass, no matter what your politics. You don't want to pull your politics into this conversation, but you also don't want to judge people who have had a significant loss who do. Like, I think I think mom gets a pass for 30 days, right? Like she's allowed to have any inappropriate emotional outburst that she wants. And all of us should just go, man, she lost her daughter or she lost her son and just let her grieve and have a pass and let the politicians fight the politics uh, and just, you know, pray for her and her grieving. That would be my advice. But I get what you're saying. When they bring it in, it yeah. is hard not to react. I, I get it. And uh, especially our country being as divided as it is right now, it's, it's easy to get sucked in, but I would just encourage everyone to focus on, you know, mission before self, team before self, in this case, nation before self and before your own personal agenda and politics. Yeah, I, I entirely agree with that. And uh, when you were saying that, it made me pull something up. I know that you guys are familiar with uh, Jack Murphy, of course, and Dave Park from the team house. Jack has been a colleague of mine for many years, and I saw what he tweeted out. And uh, it, it's crazy. You know, Jack's very like sarcastic with the way that he puts things out sometimes. But I, I thought it was a aware. good message. 
<laughs> yeah, and then he wrote here on Twitter, I wanted to pull it up to quote it correctly. He said, I don't want to shock anyone, but the bad shit happening in Afghanistan right now is not actually America's fault. It is the fault of the Taliban and ISIS-K. And I think people do lose sight of that when it's all the blame on who was the president at the time, you know, however you feel. And I understand that blame. They're not the ones killing American troops over there. Yeah, and I, I think that Jeff and I talk a lot about the fact we're, we're worried because we feel like right, what's happening right now is, you know, this sort of national vilification of, you know, party and other people. And there's a lot of, it's more than just finger pointing right now. I think there's vilification going on and that's troubling. And I think that's why we try so hard to say, to stay on message and say politically agnostic, because we have a lot more in common with each other and our neighbors. We have plenty of messes we need to clean up in our own house uh, than, you know, than we do in common with the Taliban, for example. So, you know, if you're a Republican and you're demonizing the Democrats or a Democrat demonizing the Republican re- Republicans, remember, uh, you know, they're not the Taliban. OK, yeah. these are your neighbors. And, you know, we have some policy differences. Uh, we need to remember it. it's policy. We're, we're countrymen and women. And, and, and that is that is the message that we want to put forth is we, we can't lose sight of that. We're all on the same team. And no one can boil it down like Jack Murphy, right? <laughs> yeah, and, but I no, I agree, and I, I think that's spot on. Uh, the and and hey, to, to give the other side of that, and I don't want to end on a negative, but I think on the other end, I also could see the anger from people saying, "Why are we negotiating with this pe- these people? Don't we not negotiate with terrorists? Wasn't that always our policy? And if we're going to negotiate with them, why were we there in the first place?" So I understand that anger as well. I can't say that I I don't. Yeah, no, and and me too. I get it. I completely get it. Yeah. So with that, you guys got to pick up uh, Dark Intercept and also check out all the other books from you guys. Uh, do you? Would you both say that this is a good book to start with if someone is just getting introduced to the both of you? Oh, absolutely. We're really proud of this book. It's 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 a fun, exciting book for us to be having out. And of course, starting with the first book in a new series is always fun, right? You can begin the ride at the beginning with the authors, like yeah, we're on the ride. Exactly. Um, but yeah, and they can go to andrews-wilson.com. I think we said that earlier and find all the links to all the books um, and just read the little description for yourself and see what resonates with you. But we're super, super excited about this one. And, and just if you do come to the website, keep in mind that we try to be highly engaging. So we answer emails and fan questions. If you send us pictures, we'll post them to our fan wall. Um, so there's a newsletter. You can sign up for that and keep abreast of all of our latest releases and news. Uh, we've got lots of cool news. Some of it we can't talk about. It's just because uh, we're under gag orders, but some very, very exciting stuff coming your way in the next few months. And then, Ian, I just want to say thank you. You always ask very thoughtful, engaging questions. Thank it really you, feels like a dialogue on your show, not not just uh, an interview. So thanks for that. No, I, I, you know what it is? It's listening to you guys and it brings up new ideas. I would never be one of these people who just like writes out a series of questions because something that you say is going to spark something else in my mind that I want to follow up with. So I, I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. I, I guess the last thing I, I wanted to ask you before we wrap up then, 
is we have an audience, I think, of all different backgrounds. There's definitely a lot of Christians in the audience, but there's people of all different religions or no religion at all. Do you think this is still the book to start with for them? Are they going to be turned off by that? Oh, absolutely. I don't think they'll be turned off at all. I think that this is a book, whether whether it's something that makes you investigate your faith more or it's just an exciting premise for a thriller novel, I think it can resonate in both ways. So I think that, yeah, I don't think there's anything here that someone who is not a person actively involved in faith would not enjoy. I think it it's just as fun and exciting. Um, what do you think, Brian? I agree. I would say, you know, there are billions of people that read about wizards and Harry Potter and none of them are actual wizards. So, you know, <laughs> you can come on this faith-based journey and be very secular about it or not. And, and hopefully, like, like we said earlier, it's about the characters. It's about um, storytelling. And I think there's lots of messages here that anyone and everyone can appreciate. Yeah. That, that's excellent. So yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. Uh, Andrews-Wilson.com at Andrews and Wilson on Instagram. And then on Twitter at which you guys are very active on B Andrews J Wilson on Twitter. I'll have that all in the description for anybody who wants to check it out. And the last thing I'll say is uh, just to remind you guys that this coming Sunday that you're hearing this September 12th, will be the major airing of War Heroes with Chris Peranto, of course, on Newsmax at 8 p.m. East, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Much like what you guys do, very apolitical, even though it's Newsmax and people think of Newsmax as being slanted one way or the other. This is 100% focused on a Gold Star family and a and a guy who, was losed in co- who we lost in combat uh, who is very cherished by that family. So that's the amazing story of Ryan Doltz and it's told by Cheryl Diltz, the mother of Ryan. And we're going to have Cheryl on the podcast later mm-hmm. on this month. And um, yeah, also just honor those men and women that we lost on 9-11 and the subsequent wars. They're definitely in our thoughts this week as we commemorate 20 years. And and as you guys said, very hard to believe 20 years. And um, and it's, it's important that we keep telling those stories of those people that we lost and why we went there and the story of the Twin Towers coming down and the Pentagon, because the fact, as we said, there's there's guys who serve over there and women who serve over there who weren't alive to see it. And there's people who are really unaware of what happened on that day. And, and we need to make sure that much like Pearl Harbor, World War Two, the Holocaust, the Civil War, that these stories are not forgotten. And, and we're so excited for this new this new show that, that Chris is doing. You know, they say in the military, you die twice. Once when you physically die and the second time, the last time someone says your name. So God bless him for telling these stories. And we hope that it's something that's hugely successful. Um, And anything we can do to help you guys get the word out about it, don't hesitate to ask because it's a really important, maybe more important now than ever. Thank you. Yeah, no, they did a great job. So kudos to the director of that, as well as the producer and Chris, of course, for doing it. And the next time we have you on for the next book, it will be all of us. I just know it's been a busy couple of months for Chris, but I I really appreciate you guys doing this. And uh, it's been an excellent time. Great time. Thanks for having us. Wonderful time. Thanks. That's all for this episode of the Battleline Podcast, but we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk.
Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never quit. Yeah.